good afternoon, everybody. If I uh, if I haven't gotten the chance to meet you yet, uh, my name is Bryce. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Table, uh, and I have a really important question to ask you guys um, as we get started. How do you feel about zoos? Like here, all right. Here, this is my hot take opinion on zoos. Okay, they're fine. Like it's it's not terrible. Uh, it's not the worst way to spend an afternoon, but it is not anything special. It's just fine and not really anything more than fine. Like my, my family, like going to the zoo a lot when, when we were growing up, like it was, it's great. There's lots of cool things to learn. There's like neat animals to see. Um, but my interest level just like tops out at like five minutes max per animal. Right. And like, that is, that is the max, like that is reserved for like cheetahs and polar bears. Right. Uh, and, and like that, that time is balanced out by like going through like the reptile house and the aviary, aviary, where you just like, you pretty much just don't stop. You just kind of keep a like steady walking pace and just like observe what's on the side of you as you go and take everything in while you stroll. Like Maybe I'll, maybe I'll give the crocodiles like a minute or two in the reptile room, but all the like little just, it's a lizard and another lizard and another lizard. And I'm just going to kind of observe while I walk. I have my youngest brother takes after my mom and they're like the stop and read every plaque uh, on, on every animal as you go. And I just can't, I can't do it. Like the zoos that have like 10 different kinds of monkeys. Like at some point, if you've seen a monkey, you've seen them all like, now, I, I'll, I'll concede, like, taking to our kids to the zoo does have a different kind of appeal to it. Like, we went a couple years ago, and it was pretty funny to, like, watch Coleman utterly convinced that when he howled, the wolves came running and that he was accepted into their pack. Um, but, like, that's that's just kind of more about, like, finding it interesting to watch my kids watch the animals than to, like, being interested in watching the animals themselves. All in all, like, the zoo, the aquarium... They're fine. Like solid B, right? Solid B minus. But a couple months ago, I had a completely different experience. This was fulfilling a lifelong dream and crossing a major item off the bucket list. But I got to go in a boat off the coast of Nova Scotia in search of great white sharks. And after we had uh, reached our spot for the day and dropped a few bait lines in the water with like giant tuna heads on them, it'd probably been only maybe about like 10 minutes when we were there that one of the buoys started getting pulled off against the current. And sure enough, there was a white shark on the end of it. I think we even have a video. You can see this is, this is the actual animal that was there in the water off the boat. And the boat captain like grabbed the line and tried to lure him back a little closer to the boat. And he he freaked out and he flipped around and his tail whipped up in the air. And he dropped the bait and kind of dove down deeper. But I had already gotten my wetsuit on. And so I was ready for this moment. And so once the cage hit the water, I was in the cage. Uh, and just hoping that he was still hanging around somewhere, that he hadn't headed off to open water. And I'd probably been in the cage for about 15 minutes. My eyes had had enough time to like adjust to the darkness. And then around the side of the boat, kind of around the left side from underneath the boat, this dark shadow just started to kind of emerge from the murky waters. And it felt like the whole ocean got a couple degrees colder. 
I could like feel my heartbeat in my eardrums and the whole world, I was underwater. So the whole world around me is silent. And he turned to the side and just kind of showed the whole full silhouette of this 14 foot adult male great white shark. And I will never forget that moment for the rest of my life. It was it was like being in the water with a living, breathing school bus with teeth, just feet away. And it, it might have been the size. Uh, it could have just been kind of the wild, natural habitat, or maybe as the fact that I've like dreamed about this since I was six years old. But that shark had every ounce of my full, undivided attention. And it, it was like time was standing still, like 10 minutes. 30 seconds, three hours. I don't know if I could have told you the difference between all of them. Like they would have all felt about the same amount of time passing. There was nothing in me that wanted to, to move on and go see something else, to go look at, look at if there was anything else to look at. Uh, a, a couple hours later in the trip, they were, they were throwing bait off the side of the boat trying to draw in the tuna because they said it's just really cool to see these big tuna with their bright coloring just kind of zooming through the water, taking these bait fish. So everyone was kind of on that side of the boat, like looking for these tuna. I was on the other side of the boat looking at these three bait lines that were still in the water, not because they were moving, but because if that shark came back and took one of those bait lines, I was not about to miss it because I was over trying to see tuna on the other side. I could not risk missing a chance to just get to see it again. There are some things that just stop you in your tracks. They, they demand that you drop everything and that you slow down and consider them with your full undivided attention. There, there are things that just have such power and beauty that, that possess this like gravitational pull that they cannot be taken in casually. They can't just be taken at a stroll. And I think John 1, 14 is one of those things. This is, this is the verse that we have arrived at today, and I don't think that we can take it in stride. I think it forces us to break our stride. And so today we're going to do something a little differently. We're going we're gonna to stop and we're going to camp out right here on the first half of verse 14. We're, we're not going to try to walk through a section of verses. We aren't even going to try to get all the way through verse 14. We're going to break stride to have our, our pace and our rhythm and our steps arrested we're going to stop in our tracks, and, and as time stands still, we're going to give these eight words our undivided attention. Because this, this verse really is the, the climax of the gospel, of, of, this, of the prologue uh, that John's giving us. As he, as he lays out the foundation of the gospel, this is, this is his climax. There's something uh, like highly poetic and almost hymn-like to these 18 verses that we've we've been reading. I I don't speak Spanish. I speak I speak very little. I know a couple words here and there, right? And so when David was reading, I hadn't thought about this until just as he was about to read. Um, and I was like, I'm gonna close my eyes and I'm just gonna listen to the cadence of his voice. And when it hears like he hits a climax in a different language, when it just when his voice rises and it sounds like, man, this is the punch of what he's saying. I'm going to open my eyes. I'm going to listen to what word he's saying, and I'm going to see if I can find where he is in the passage. And as he did that, as his 
voice came up and it was like, here we go. Here's the climax. I listened and I heard the word carne, right? Flesh. And right after that, Gloria, glory, which is right, which the end of verse 14, it's like there, there he was reading in a different language. And this is the climax. I think if we read and listen and catch that poetic cadence, I think you will, you will be able to feel this crescendo. I'm going to read these 18 verses for us again. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. I don't know if you guys like musicals. Um, I do. I love them. Uh, Elizabeth and I have taken every opportunity that we could to see as many on-Broadway and off-Broadway shows that we can. And in many of them, there's this one moment, like maybe it's one song, maybe it's one line, like sometimes it's even one note that is worth the whole price of admission, where you're like, this is it. Like, this is the moment that this whole show exists for. So whether it's Alphaba being lifted to the ceiling in defying gravity, or if it's the Phantom of the Opera on the roof, uh, just vowing that you will live to curse the day that you did not do what he asked. There's just these musical moments, these crescendos that are so thrilling that the rest of the show is made bigger and brighter and better and fuller because of it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is John's crescendo. And it, it, isn't, it isn't just a crescendo. It isn't just the climax. It isn't just the peak of this building action. There's also almost like an intentional reset here. This is the first time that, that logos, the, the term the word, is used again after verse 1. So back in verse 1, John gives this designation of the logos, the word, to Jesus. And he told us about the word, who is, who is with God and who was God, by whom all things were created. He talked about the life and light that breaks into the darkness and overcomes it. He introduced us to a, to a man named John who had come to bear witness about the light, showed us that, the, that he was not the light, 
um, but t- but testifies about the light, and that that this light and life has both been not received and received, and what that means. And now he he kind of shifts from the light and life terminology back to the terminology of the word, back to the logos, asking our hearts to hearken back to and to remember verse one, to remember the eternal pre-incarnate universe creating God that was the word that was with God in the beginning. That's the, that is the one that he wants us to remember, to have on the tip of our mind because he's about to tell us something more about him. And that something more is that the word became flesh. These, these verses, verse one and verse 14, where we're at today, kind of act like major pillars for the prologue. So we have, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word became flesh. John is, John is giving us handholds as we begin to climb through this gospel message. How many of you here watched Dora the Explorer? Yeah, or or at least you're at least you're a little bit familiar with the show, right? So in the show, Dora and her little monkey sidekick Boots are uh, before they go on each adventure, before they start out, Dora always looks right at the camera as as Dora does, right? And she tells the the kids kind of lays out for the children watching the major checkpoints that they need to pass in order to reach their destination. So she says, first, we have to cross the Crocodile River, and then we go over the Snowy Mountain, and then we find Abuela's house, right? And then she repeats it, River, Mountain, Abuela's house. All right, everybody, say it with me. River, Mountain, Abuela's house. Now, lots of other things are going to happen along the journey, right? We're going at some point. We're going to have to consult map. We're going to have to get something out of backpack. He's going to have some supplies that we need. We're going to listen to their little songs that they're going to sing. At some point, inevitably, Swiper is going to swipe something, and we're going to have to try to repel him. But Dora kept reminding us each episode as the episode went along, reminding us of the checkpoints as we crossed each one. River, mountain, Abuela's house. We are headed to a glorious destination in verse 18. Verse 18, the one and only Son has revealed God the Father, the unseen God, who no one has ever seen. He's been revealed. How? How is that possible? How do we get there? And John is giving us the waypoints. He's giving us the logos. The word was God. The word became flesh. The father revealed. So if John is asking us to remember these checkpoints along the way, if he's marking them by this term, the logos, inviting our hearts to go back and remember who this word is, then let's do that. Let's pause for just a minute and ask that question. Why is he calling Jesus the word? What is the Logos? First, it means that Jesus is God's self-revelation. He himself is God's self-revelation. This is how John's Jewish readers would have understood what was meant by the word. God revealed himself to his people, to Israel, through his word, through speaking. He, he revealed this firstly in creation. He made himself known by what was made, that he left his fingerprints all over it. And he made it by speaking, by speaking the word, by the power of his words. So John's audience would hear this designation of Jesus and know that John is telling us that Jesus, the Son, the Christ, is the power of God in creation. 
that he is the word that was spoken into the into the emptiness the 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 genesis calls it the tovu vavohu the formlessness and void that the word was spoken into that it brought order to chaos and somethingness into the nothingness secondly they would they would have also understood john to be identifying jesus with the wisdom of God itself. So God made himself known and his plan throughout Israel's history again and again by speaking. Like like in moments that we're talking about in this story, like with people like Abraham and Moses. Like with Moses in the burning bush. And in in much of the Old Testament, the wisdom of God almost acts more like a character than it does a concept. The wisdom of God is personified. In verse in Proverbs uh, 8, The wisdom of God speaks as a character. And this is what the wisdom of God says. Before the mountains were established, I was. I was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the ocean gushed out. I was a skilled craftsman beside him, his delight always rejoicing before him. And John taps into that understanding that understanding of the the personal wisdom of God here in this designation of Jesus as the Word, that he is the one that was with God in the beginning, the skilled craftsman by whom all things were made. Uh, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1. He says that Christ is the very wisdom of God, that he is the power of God and the wisdom of God both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Which is is actually really interesting that Paul addresses both Jews and Greeks because this concept that we have here in John, this concept of the Logos, would have been significant to John's Greek readers as well. So the, the Gentiles would not have had as full of an understanding of what it means for Christ to be the Word as his Jewish readers would. They didn't have this rich history of God's self-revealing wisdom. But this is good news both to Jew and to Greek. And so for the for the Greeks, the logos, this term, the Word, the logos, was the, was the concept by which all life operated in Greek philosophy. It was this all-binding force of reason that governed and upheld all things. Kind of like reason with a capital R is how they would have understood the Lagos. So even though they would, would have only gotten a taste of what John is saying here, as he reveals Jesus to be the very wisdom of the self-revealing God, they, they would have understood his message, understanding it to mean that Jesus is the reason, he's the logic, the order, the wisdom that, that binds and holds the universe together. This is what it means for Jesus to be the word. But again, as, as incredibly spellbinding and captivating that that concept of the logos might be, it is not the most shocking part of what John is saying. He's telling us that, that the Logos, that the word that we just talked about, became flesh, that he, he literally assumed humanity. Now, the, the full like deity and humanity of Jesus, the fact that the word was God and did indeed become flesh, has been the point throughout history where most heresies in the early church diverged right there at a wrong understanding of what it meant for the word to become flesh. And so the, this, this doctrine of the incarnation was the one that the, that the early church fathers spent the most amount of blood and sweat and tears and ink 
uh, holding fast to and holding tightly to. So we want to be very clear. When the Word became flesh, this was not just an assuming of appearance. He did not simply look human. God became fully man. And it was not temporary either. The Son did not take on flesh only for the duration of his earthly life. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, the Word who was with God in the beginning, was raised from the grave after he was crucified. He was raised bodily. He ascended. He was taken up into the heavens bodily. He, he right now sits enthroned in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father in a human body. The Word became flesh. It did not just appear flesh or adopt flesh, but became flesh. This is why we reject the idea when we take the Lord's Supper that the, that the bread and the wine literally become the body and blood of Jesus because we know where the literal body and blood of Jesus are right now. The scriptures tell us, seated at the right hand of the Father. And human bodies aren't in two places at the same time. That's part of what it means to be a human body. Jesus took on the spatial properties of being human. The word became flesh. And that should stop you in your tracks. That should be one of those things that you cannot just stroll past. And and this is much less sterile than we would imagine when we hear it. This is much less, not nearly as clean as we picture it was certainly uh, more shocking to the original audience, and, and this is why. We have done everything that we can in our modern Western context to sanitize the material things, to sanitize the physical, to remove the fleshiness and the dustiness of the flesh. In fact, like we kind of idolize it. We say things like, my body is my temple. But like... The John's readers, this is not the situation that they're listening to this in. We, we want our, our stuff to be pristine. But life in the ancient Near East would have just been dustier, like literally and figuratively. You don't, there are no vehicles to get around, meaning that dirt caked your feet from everywhere that you walked. And you walked on the same street that animals walked on, and they were not exactly great at cleaning up after themselves. There's, there's no indoor plumbing. There's no hand sanitizer. There's no refrigerators. Like, how, how do refrigerators change our perspective on the flesh? Well, like, right now, you probably have some cuts of flesh at your house, right? Where do you keep them? In the refrigerator. Maybe when you get home, you might take some of those pieces of flesh out of your refrigerator and prepare them for dinner. And when you handle it, it will be cold and clean and fresh, and it'll probably give off a pleasing aroma as it begins to cook. But if you lived in a world without refrigeration, you would have a very different understanding of the kinds of sights and smells to associate with flesh, right? Without air conditioning and deodorant, you would have a different perspective on the sights and smells of human flesh. The, this, like our modern world has gone to great lengths to, to utopianize our flesh. We, but at the end of the day, we are meat on bones. We are dust from dust. 
And the original audience would have understood this. They would have felt this much more viscerally than we do. That these two things, word and flesh, just shouldn't go together. That they don't, they don't match. These things are not like one another. That, it, that that idea is scandalous. God himself and dirty, stinky, dusty flesh. That sometimes there are just two things that seem so diametrically opposed, they just should not go together, right? Has anybody ever been to Planet Fitness, the gym? They, they started this thing, I don't know if they do it everywhere, but they started this thing a while ago that they call Pizza Mondays, where uh, like members get, a free, get free pizza at the gym every Monday. Like, eating a slice of pepperoni while you're jogging on the treadmill just seems like two of those things that just don't really go together. That, that is how John's readers would have felt about this verse. What do you mean the word became flesh? What are you talking about? There's no way that those two things go together. And th- that is not like a, you're like, I don't know, ma- maybe they caught on to this or maybe when they read this verse, it kind of hit them funny. Like the scandalous juxtaposition of those two ideas, those two words, the word and the flesh, would have jumped off the page at them. They, they, you can't miss it. John's writing in Greek here. Like, uh, whether, whether his readers are Jewish or whether there's, they're Greek, they're reading in the same language. They're reading this in Greek. And Greek sentence structure is different from the English. The direct object actually comes before the verb instead of after it, which means that this text actually reads, the word flesh became. Halagos, sarks, agenita, the logos, the word, and the sarks, the flesh, are literally side by side in the Greek. The word flesh became. In the text, on the page, as they read this gospel, word and flesh are touching. Because in Jesus, the word and flesh are touching. And, and this is the pattern of the Christian story. The logos, and the flesh touching. God with man, divine and flesh. This is not a, an ethereal, hyper-spiritual reality that just has little to no effect on the ordinary mundane things. But it's also not carnal. It's not saying that only what you see and taste and touch is real and everything else is just imaginary. The Christian story is where heaven and earth meet, where they are intimately connected and they are irreversibly intertwined. Uh, Corey introduced us to this idea a couple weeks ago when he was teaching on the phrase, there was a man named John. He kind of paused to marvel on the fact that like John was just waxing eloquent on Christ's role in the creation of the universe. How could he so seamlessly transition to something as plain and familiar as there was a man named John? And he, he told us that it's because the Christian story is one where the divine breaks into the ordinary. And this is why Verse 14 is why the Christian story is patterned this way. It's because the word became flesh. This is why the Christian story is the intersection of before the foundations of the earth and 2.30 on a Wednesday. Those two things meet intimately because the divine and the earthly, the ethereal and the physical, touch in Jesus. So that makes us ask the question, why? Why did the word become flesh? What does John say? The word became flesh and did what? 
dwelt among us. And this doesn't just mean that he walked around and hung out with us. He dwelt among us. Have you, have you guys ever seen the show Undercover Boss? They take like some CEO and they dress him up like an average employee and they have him just kind of spend the day with their working class, kind of rubbing elbows with and seeing what their jobs are like, hearing their opinions about the company. That is not what this is like. This is not Undercover Boss, the Incarnation Edition. At the end of the day, those CEOs kind of take off their makeup and they put their expensive suits back on and they return to their corner offices. The word did not appear as flesh to mingle with us and rub elbows with us. He became flesh to dwell with us, to inhabit with us as one of us. The word for dwell here is actually the same word used for tabernacle. Like in Exodus 25, 8, when God says, uh, they are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. Early in Israel's history, God used to meet with Moses. Uh, kids, do you guys remember in our lesson a few minutes ago, remember when we were talking about Moses, right? That God used Moses and his story to point forward to Jesus. Well, God's story t tells us that as he came to Moses to remind him of his promise, that God used to meet with Moses outside the camp. He met in this tent called the Tent of Meeting. And then he told them to build the tabernacle right in the middle of the camp so that instead of meeting with them outside, that he could meet with them, that he could dwell with them right in their midst in the tabernacle. And John is telling us that, that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus, that the word became flesh so that God could again tabernacle or dwell right in the midst of his people, inside the camp, among us as one of us. This is the whole trajectory of human history, God dwelling with man. From, from the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, when God walks in the evening breeze, all the way to the end of the story in Revelation 21, when, when there's a loud voice that proclaims God's dwelling is with humanity. And John 1.14 is our waypoint along that journey. Again, remember your Dora the Explorer. Garden, Incarnation, New Jerusalem. These are the waypoints that we're being given along the story. The person of Jesus Christ is the, is the place where God meets us. It's the locus of God's dwelling with humanity. That, that is what it means for the word to become flesh and to dwell with us. And this idea is all over the scriptures, if you know where to look for it. In Romans chapter 3, Paul is talking about God presenting Christ at the right time, that, that to be both just and to be our justifier. And as he's talking about it, as he's talking about how God has presented him, he picks this really unusual word to describe Jesus. He says that he presented him as the, the hilasterion, which, which can be translated like the propitiation that he's taken away God's wrath against sin against us in our place. But even more specifically than that, this, this word is actually not a, a concept or an idea. It's actually a place. It's translated the mercy seat, that God presented Jesus as the mercy seat, which was the place on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle where God's glory was said to, to sit, to dwell with his people. And Paul tells us that Jesus has now been presented as this place, 
as this mercy seat, that he's the, he is the locus, he is the point, the insertion point at which God meets and dwells with man, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if all of that is true, if Jesus is the eternal God, if he's the eternal word, God from the beginning, if he became flesh, if he took on our full humanity, and if he dwelt with us, if Jesus' flesh is the meeting point where God dwells with his people, what should our response be? What should you leave this place today doing? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two responses. Now, th- these are not the only two. Uh, again, these, these eight words are so rich and deep that they warrant like parking in front of and considering for great lengths of time. And so uh, the list of responses to such multifaceted beauty could go on and on and on. And so I would encourage you, like later this week, sit down and camp on this verse, this half of verse 14, even more, and ask yourself, what does the truth of God made flesh demand of me? But to help us uh, land the plane today, I'm going to give you two responses, two major markers of things that I think we must do in response to the news that the word became flesh, which is first, bring your flesh to Jesus. Bring your flesh to the word who became flesh. And this is what I mean by that. You are human, flesh and blood, and you have flesh and blood problems. You get sick. You get hungry. Things hurt. Like maybe even right now you are wearied by aches and pains. You get weary. You grow tired. How many of you at some point this week have just felt exhausted? You have flesh and blood problems. And on top of that, you live in a physical, material world. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, the consequences of that were physical and material too. Things like thorns grew in the dust. Childbearing became painful. This, that is a flesh problem. You live in a world where things break down, where your body breaks down. Where uh, you live in a place where you need to eat to live, and you need money to eat, and you need to work to make money, and work is hard. Sometimes work is hard to come by. Sometimes work is interrupted by sickness and injury, and all the time work is just hard to do day after day after day, and you need it. You need work for money, for food for life. And if if all of that wasn't hard enough, on top of all of that, your flesh comes with this of other lovely little feature called a sin nature. There are physical components to the temptations that you feel. There are physical consequences to the sins that you indulge. There are sorrows and fears and regrets. And those are not just emotional things. Don't tell me those are just emotional things. Hasn't everyone here had times in your life where immaterial things made you feel materially ill? Haven't you felt like physically sick at the thought of non-physical things, fears, emotions? Because we are not neatly compartmentalized creatures. We are flesh and spirit body and mind, the breath of life breathed into creatures of dust all bound up in one. 
But here's the good news. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So stop believing that Jesus only cares about your spiritual problems. That you need spiritual help for spiritual problems and emotional help for emotional problems and human help for human problems, physical help for physical problems, chemical help for chemical problems, and that Jesus is only involved in that small fraction of your life that's spiritual and religious in nature. Every aspect of the flesh, every aspect of the sarks, Every reality that comes with being embodied creatures, pain, sorrow, struggle, regret, fear, trials, all of that belongs to Jesus. It is his territory. It is his prerogative. You can bring all of that to him. You can bring it to him in prayer. He cares to listen about all of those things. He knows all of those things intimately. But you can also trust him with them. You don't have to feel like you're alone working in those areas without an advocate. He is working behind the scenes in all of those areas. He's sovereign and he's good and he cares about you. And he doesn't just care about your soul. He cares about your flesh. He cares about your bodies, your emotions, your relationships, your work, your finances. He cares about your rest. And you can trust that that obedience to his word And obedience to his ways will be beneficial in all of those other areas because those are all areas that he cares about. And what proof, what other proof do you need that he cares about them other than this? The word became flesh. Obviously, he cares about them. He became them. He has borne your flesh. And he has redeemed it. The early church fathers, as they, as they defended the doctrine of the incarnation, they had a saying. They'd say, what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed. Uh, meaning, but good news, he assumed all of your humanity so that he could redeem all of your humanity. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 2 tells us that this makes Jesus both a faithful and a merciful, merciful high priest, that he assumed those things so that he could help you, so that he could help us. He says, it's clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring, to help humans. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God, to make atonement for the sins of the people. Since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Bring every part of your flesh to Jesus He is able to help. And as you do, secondly, know that God will dwell with us. Let this this waypoint along the journey that the word became flesh remind you and assure you of the destination that we're going to. As you cross the snowy mountain, Remember that that means Abuela's house is right over the next horizon. The word became flesh so that God would dwell with us. And that story is not finished. Remember the promise of Revelation 21 that God's dwelling place will be with man? That story has a happy ending. That as much as it might not always seem that way here and now, that life is a comedy, not a tragedy. Uh, maybe you don't feel that way. Maybe you don't really like Christmas romantic comedies all that much because you say they're just, they're too predictable. The 
town gets saved, the kid finds a family, the guy gets a girl, and it all ends in a snowy winter wonderland kiss under the stars. Right? And and you might not like that in your movies. But man, that is a great story arc to the story of the world. Let's rejoice with every fiber of our being that our story, that our lives, that the true story of the whole world is a Christmas romantic comedy. That the ending is predictable. It's already been announced early in the plot and the script. God's dwelling place will be with us. The town gets saved. New Jerusalem, the kingdom city adorned for her king. The kid finds a family. To all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. The guy gets the girl. The bridegroom returns to collect his bride, the the church, dressed in white and adorned with his righteousness. And it all ends with a wedding and a feast in an eternal kingdom wonderland. The word of God, the word was God and dwelt with God in the beginning in the garden and dwelt with man in the garden. The word became flesh and dwelt with man again in his incarnation. And God's dwelling place will be with man forever in the new creation. River, mountain, abuela's house. 